Diverse Voices. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and our guest today is, I believe, a fellow Iowan. Well, I hope so. I'm pretty sure a fellow Iowan, although I was not actually born in Iowa, but I've lived most of my life here, and my mother was born here, and my grandparents, and my great-grandparents, etc., etc. You should be able to get your paper. <laughs> yes. So Neil Hamilton is an emeritus professor of law and the former director of the Agricultural Law Center at Drake University in Des Moines, which is where my grandfather went to law school. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah. I've been there for almost 40 years. <laughs> I think he predated you there. Um, he retired from full-time mm-hmm. teaching in 2019 after 38 years focusing on agriculture and food law. He was raised on his family farm in Adams County, attended Iowa State University for Forestry and the University of Iowa for Law, which is where my sister went to law school. Teaching, writing, and mm-hmm. consulting work led to travels around the globe and um, he has advised presidential candidates, cabinet secretaries, and others looking for insight on issues involving farming, rural society, conservation, and land tenure. And he now lives at Sunstead Farm, a market garden oasis near Waukee, just west of Des Moines. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Neil. Well, thank you, uh, Monica. It's a pleasure to join you. I look forward to our conversation. The book we're talking about is The Land Remains, a Midwestern Perspective on Our Past and Future. I'm guessing this is not the first book you've published? Well, no, I've I've (laughs) published a number of books uh, that are kind of uh, law for uh, non-lawyers. This is the first book that uh, was kind of published by an independent publisher, though, right? Uh, This one was published by uh, Ice Cube Press and Steve Simpkin out of uh, North Liberty, Iowa. And so I'm very proud of it and that being that kind of first uh, uh, non-lawyer and non-legal type book. So were the others published by a by a Drake University Press? Or? We published them through Drake. Uh, one of them was published by Farm Journal, and uh, so when, one of them was supported by the USDA. And uh, so this one is is a little bit different in that regard. It's more for the general populace. Very much so. Yes. Yeah. So tell us um, what like what is the purpose <laughs> of the land remains. Well, the purpose of the land remains is to uh, uh, tell the story of our land and our relationship to it, uh, particularly with an Iowa focus and uh, with a largely agricultural focus as well, because agriculture is such a dominant part of our society. It's part uh, history, part memoir, part uh, uh, there's some law in it, and uh, a contemporary discussion of uh, the uh, positive things and the challenges we face as well uh, as relates to land and water and public lands and that whole suite of issues. So was this your, like, retirement project? <laughs> well, this is a book that I, I think I've started on three or four different times over the last 15 or 20 years and uh, uh, and so had kind of files and chapter outlines. But then once I retired and wasn't teaching – and then, ironically, once COVID struck and uh, you, you didn't have the excuse of traveling here or there or speaking at this conference, uh, uh, you know, I told myself, well, if I'm going to write this book, I just need to sit down and write it. 
And so I wrote every day for uh, almost nine months uh, religiously, uh, though I'm not necessarily a religious person, but I, I guess diligently, I should say. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, so this is the book that emerged. And uh, it uh, was a, uh, I, you know, as any writer knows, you're not quite sure where you're going to end up when you start, uh, though you know there are our stories and a theme uh, and ideas that you want to share with readers. And so that's uh, how this book emerged. And it may seem like a dry subject, especially this year when drought, mm -hmm. <laughs> the land. <laughs> but I guess I've never thought of it. As a dry subject, but no, no but for a lot of people, your perception, for uh... a lot of people, it may seem like that, but, but it is so, it is, told as story not mm -hmm. just fact um and there's some really interesting stories in here starting with the story of your family's connection to the iowa land yeah well and, and you know the on the idea that it's it's maybe dry but on the other hand you know almost everyone in iowa and many people in the country have a connection to land uh, and we all have a story. Uh, the land has a story, too. And those stories may be woven together. Uh, the land uh, has a resilience. And as the title says, you know, the land will remain. Uh, and, you know, I in part tell the story through our farm that uh, my family first acquired parts of it back in the 1870s. And then, uh, you know, I grew up on and my wife and I inherited and in fact sold the last part of which is uh, a part of the story uh, but the big book begins uh, telling the story about how grandma Anna saves the farm and um, that was a decision that my grandmother made uh, in the 1950s uh, in a rather unusual uh, uh, estate planning uh, decision as to how she allocated the farm among my father and his siblings. What was unusual about it? Well, uh, you know, the the Hamiltons kind of did uh, the uh, uh, the Grapes of Wrath exodus in reverse. Uh, my dad was born in southwest Iowa in, in 1911, uh, but uh, his family moved to Southern California in 1916 and had a very kind of prosperous life for a while, and uh, then uh, the Depression came and family issues arose, and so in the mid-30s, my grandmother, Aunt Anna, moved back to uh, the farm that she was inheriting from her father, Mencken, and my father, in fact, came back with her along with one of his brothers, and they had been raised in Southern California and then came back and were farming with horses in the mid-30s and were known locally as the California Fools. And uh, the other brother quickly saw a good opportunity to leave and spent his career in the Merchant Marines. But my father was a sticker and he stuck and farmed and took care of his mom and met my mother and uh, then they were only married. And then so when my grandmother Anna died, uh, she left the farm half of it to my dad and the other half to his five siblings in pieces, but then required that they sell their pieces to him. 
And as the book tells the story, then the reason I say that Grandmother Anna saved the farm was that was the only way that the farm would have stayed intact, right? Mm -hmm. If she had divided it equally to all six of them. And, uh, but instead, uh, she, I think, recognized what he had done in terms of caring for her and the land. And uh, the siblings didn't care for it. There was a threatened lawsuit and it was a, led to a large family division. I didn't meet many of the California clan until over a decade later. But uh, so, you know, many people, I think, when they plan their estates, think that they need to treat their children equally. And, you know, that's not a bad idea, though your children may not be situated equally. And I think in her situation, she treated them fairly in her yes, mind. Yes. And uh, that was what was unusual. Unusual in the 1950s and unusual today in the 2020s. And, of course, you know, there's been books written about this. Wasn't um, Jane Smiley's A Thousand Acres yeah. about a an inheritance oh, dispute yeah, um, yeah and, and and in fact uh, you know Mencken uh Mencken and his brother Dan had about a thousand acres at the turn <laughs> of the century they had enough land that they gave uh, a farm to each of the three children you know, Uncle Charlie got the home place and Aunt Jessie got the farm down by where they built the family church and then Anna got the 200 acres that uh, I grew up on I know that 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 can really cause land disputes seem to be at the root of oh my gosh. many you, you, family. You can't scratch a <laughs> you can't scratch an island very deep until they uh, tell you a story about. Let me tell you what happened to us, right? Yes, and then it's yeah. usually the piece of land they lost or some dirty deal that went down within the family, and uh, so land uh, is uh, has a wonderful sentimental attachment, and and so those stories and that connection to the land is kind of woven into the book as well. My grandmother grew up on an Iowa farm in Jasper County and mm -hmm. um, one of nine children. And mm. I think, I don't let's see how many of them migrated to California, probably in the thirties is probably when they went to California. And most to Long Beach probably to that area. Yeah. Um, about, f I think, four out of the nine moved that way, and a couple more went east, and only three out of the nine stayed in Iowa. Sure. So there really was a huge exodus. Um, well, children, uh, though we don't like to think of it this way, but farm kids have probably been one of the most important exports that Iowa's made, and probably the most important export from Iowa agriculture over the last century. Uh, but... Uh, uh, we don't necessarily think of it in that way, right? I mean, we think of, you know, giving our children the opportunity to go to college, and we have our wonderful public universities and private universities, and people go on and seek their careers. Certainly, my parents never expected me to be a farmer or wanted me to stay on the farm. Uh, ironically, you know, my wife and I have a small farm, and I never got <laughs> far away from agriculture, but it's a much different farm, certainly, than the one I grew up on. Right. And a lot of in this book, The Land Remains, um, you're talking about sort of the history of how farming has changed in Iowa um, over more than a century. And there are there are things in there that I really wasn't aware of. <laughs> <laughs> give me a for, give me a for instance. Um, well, I think the the fact that soil conservation was such a big issue in the 30s. 
Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, as you know, soil conservation, we kind of came to recognize the issue as the depression and the Dust Bowl and the creation of kind of the modern USDA was happening. And we created the network of soil and water conservation districts. And we used conservation policy as the delivery mechanism for financial support into agriculture. And uh, there was a, I think, a very strong local recognition and movement around conservation. Uh, I think you could argue probably a much greater acceptance of it today or then than you have today, at least in terms of how it was going to uh, perhaps change how we farm and change our attitudes towards the land. I think today a lot of people assume that conservation has been taken care of, but it really hasn't. We lose more soil than we should in many ways lose almost as much as we did in the 1930s uh, because our farming systems are so much more uh, intensive and we're farming so much more marginal ground. We have uh, so much uh, less uh, grassland and and pasture and livestock out on the land. Uh, so it's um, it's a continuing issue. And, you know, the book, one of the chapters deals specifically with soil conservation and kind of the myths that we tell ourselves. And one of the great myths we tell ourselves is that um, there's kind of an acceptable level of soil loss. And anybody that's worked in this area knows that people talk about T and T is kind of the tolerance level. And our assumption is uh, that uh, soil is replacing itself at five tons per acre. And so five tons is T. Uh, or the reality is that under cropping practices, uh, uh, most lands probably not reproducing soil at half a ton uh, a year, let alone five tons a year. Uh, but yet uh, the USDA uh, doesn't necessarily acknowledge that. And uh, so we continue to lose uh, uh, soil, and uh, we're basically mining our way down through this wonderful topsoil. We've been doing it, you know, since uh, we broke out the prairie after the Civil War, and uh, I suppose we'll continue to do it as long as we can uh, keep pouring fertilizer on it and uh, uh, get a crop out of it. And the reason that that there's not more awareness of it, more concern about it, is that the fertilizers have improved, the seed have improved, the in, the other inputs have mm -hmm. have made up for some mm -hmm. of that soil loss. Yeah, and though I think you are, I mean, people recognize it or they're coming to. One of the ways they're, uh, ironically, that they're beginning to recognize it is, uh, you know, soil with less carbon in it and more compacted uh, doesn't absorb water very well. And so that's one of the reasons that we are having more kind of runoff. You know, people, the fields are flashier, right? I mean, you can have a half inch or an inch rain and you'll see water standing on top of the fields and pooling and, and sliding off as opposed to soaking down into it. And so that whole issue of compaction and, la and lack of carbon is very much impacting the health of the soil. And it also makes the soil you know, more drought uh, susceptible because uh, uh, the more carbon content it has, the more it will absorb water and hold water 
so that it's more resilient under dry conditions. And that's why, you know, one of the things that I think many of your listeners may recognize that in the last several years, you've had lots more discussion of soil health. This is a term that you probably almost never heard mentioned five years ago or 10 years ago. And by soil health, it's kind of a recognition both of that carbon question, uh, water infiltration rates, and kind of the role that the critters, right, all of the, the mm-hmm. microorganisms and the stuff that's in healthy soil, how it plays such a key role in fertility and all the other things that we want the soil to do for us. And so that's partly why, uh, you know, one of the themes of the book is, you know, listen to the land. And as you know, uh, you know, part of it's narrated by the land, by the back 40. And that idea of thinking of the soil's health. Uh, is an issue that uh, I think is one that many uh, readers may encounter and make them stop and think a little bit. Absolutely. Another thing that surprised me was, you know, I think along with many other people, we've seen the rise of uh, no-till practices and thought that that had solved a lot of it because I remember where you used to drive along the high or the roads, highways, back roads, wherever in the winter, and mm-hmm. the snow would always be brown on the top because of the, the mm-hmm. soil blowing off of the fields that had been plowed up already, and um, on on top of you know as you know as the soil melted sure. on the fields, then it would blow off, and I don't see that as much anymore. But the, but no-till hasn't solved things, has it? Well, it certainly is an improvement, but, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you take two steps forward and on the front field and one step forward on the back 40. You know, no-till may have some other trade-offs in terms of uh, uh, the increased uh, uh, pesticide use to control weeds if you aren't mechanically tilling them. Um, you know, part of the challenge is that we're also farming more marginal ground, right? Or uh, you know, maybe marginal is not the right word, a ground that we didn't farm before. Uh, most everybody's probably driven by a field and thought, oh, my gosh, I, I, I don't think they ought to be farming that hillside, right, or, or that wet bottom. And, um, you know, the, the – uh, as I say in the book, you know, our push for – kind of all-out expanding crop production, uh, particularly as the demand for corn and our uh, all-in commitment to ethanol. Uh, you know, it's led us to farm the land harder and farm land that we might not otherwise have farmed. We, we've converted millions of acres of uh, grassland and pasture uh, to, to crop production. And... Uh, you know, there isn't maybe anything necessarily inherently wrong with ethanol, uh, but if the, the way you raise corn has some challenges in terms of water quality and soil erosion, you know, anything that just continues to enhance and encourage corn production, particularly as it moves on to more fragile or marginal land, if you aren't dealing with the conservation issues, then you're just creating a bigger problem. What percentage of Iowa's corn goes to ethanol? Well, you know, you'll see all types of answers on this, right? I mean, there's a story in the paper today about how the corn growers, uh, it sounds like in a rather contentious debate, uh, voted to endorse the CO2 pipelines. And that story says about half of our corn crop goes to ethanol. 
Uh, it's probably more than that. It's probably closer to 60%, uh, but you get back to only by saying half because uh, there are the distiller's grain portion that's left over. And so part of the corn that's ground and used to make ethanol, uh, there's still a portion of it that's, uh, uh, you know, retained and used for animal feed. Mm. And so if you discount that, then they can say, you know, only half. The way, the way I think about the ethanol situation is I can remember, you know, 40 years ago during the farm crisis, uh, you know, and in the late 70s, when we first started with, you know, ethanol, at that time it was called gasohol. You may remember <laughs> it as well. Yeah. And you'd see the the sticker of an ear of corn on a gas pump and it'd say, you know, this gasoline contains 10% alcohol made from corn. And, you know, it was seen as um, a way to expand markets that was at a time when we had significant set asides and you know we had an over surplus of corn and so we were looking at absorbing it and i don't think anybody standing there kind of thinking about the future of ethanol would have thought that 40 years down the road we would be taking and grinding half of iowa's corn crop and burning it as gasoline as opposed to using it for food uh, and, you know, I think that the food or fuel debate is still a debate that society can have, right? Lots of people like to think that it's been put to bed. Uh, the question of whether ethanol is even that much of an environmentally friendlier fuel, uh, you know, is also potentially debatable. Again, it depends perhaps on how and where you're raising the corn that went into uh, the ethanol. So yeah, how much fertilizer went into it? How much diesel yeah. on the tractors went into it? Are you actually all, getting a net the, energy gain? Yeah, all of all of those issues. Now, you know, of course, people love to say that it's renewable. Well, you know, it is renewable, uh, you know, and if you're not mining the soil or polluting the water in the process. And uh, so... Uh, you know, there are a number of those type of issues, you know, that I think people like to think that things are cut and dried, right? Pigs are good for Iowa, ethanol's good for Iowa, and, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, I think it was much more widely accepted that pigs were good for Iowa and more pigs were probably better. But that was also when we had pigs on 60 or 80,000 farms across the state, spread yeah. fairly widely across the in state. In those little A-frame houses. Yeah. And, you know, today <laughs> we have uh, half again as many pigs, uh, you know, 24 million as opposed to 14. But, yeah, we have all those pigs raised by around 5,000 uh, farms. Uh, and most of those pigs raised under contract to large-scale integrators. And so the whole economic and cultural dimension of pigs have changed, right? I mean, when they were all of our pigs, well, maybe they smelled, but they didn't smell so much. But when they were all your pigs, <laughs> I think they smell, right? And and uh, and when the economic benefits were more widely shared uh, through farm communities, uh, well, then pigs were good for us. But you know, now the benefits are widely, or, you know, widely, maybe wildly is a better word, uh, concentrated into the hands of a relatively small number of integrators. The money that 
people get for basically taking care of the pigs, somebody else's pigs in their buildings, uh, isn't particularly remunerative. Uh, you know, you're not getting increased money when prices are high. You may be shielded from some of the risk of a downturn in market, but you're certainly not shielded from risks, right? I mean, the contracts are essentially a risk uh, shifting device. Uh, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, paying to buy a McDonald's franchise so you could have a minimum wage job. Uh, <laughs> right? I mean, if you have to borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars to build a facility and then the contract, uh, you know, returns about enough to pay for the note on the facility. And maybe you get the manure, right? And the manure may well have a value as fertilizer if you account for it as fertilizer. Uh, which hopefully many people do, though certainly not everybody. Uh, so anyway, there uh, uh, many of the issues in our state have uh, a nuance to us to them that uh, I think unfortunately many people would perhaps just assume we didn't talk about. Right, and another issue that you know I mentioned in the book, and one of those changes is the increase in farm tenancy. You know, which is the other side of the coin of the increase in non-operator land ownership. And non-operator land ownership is, you know, one of those wonderful new terms that maybe is not a euphemism, but it's a first cousin, right? I mean, we used to talk about absentee owners, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning, right. you know, the people who owned the land but didn't farm it. Well, of course, you know, that's a fairly general term. I mean, the absentee owner can be a widow in a nursing home five miles away or, you know, a doctor and a lawyer a thousand miles away or an investor, right? And so they come in different shapes and sizes. And so we talk about them as non-operator landowners. And, and there are several things about that. I mean, it's understandable. I mean, when I inherited uh, my parents' farm, you know, down in Adams County and rented it to a young neighbor, I was a NOLO, right, a non-operator landowner, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, the the lease was the other end of it. But, you know, the one thing about a, a lease relationship is they're inherently asymmetrical, uh, and uh, the landlord has almost all of the power in the relationship determining the rent and the length and whether or not I want to terminate it next year and tell you to go somewhere else. And so it increases the economic vulnerability for the tenants, though we don't like to think of tenancy as, as a vulnerable relationship. It also increases, I think, the environmental vulnerability uh, because, uh, you know, I, I don't imagine, Monica, most of your listeners don't wash their rental cars when they take them back. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not that tenants don't take care of farmland but they don't it's almost human nature that we don't take care of something that we rent on an annual basis as we would if we owned it ourselves we're certainly not going to put a lot of money into it well sir and so what what would that money go for you mean something like a soil conservation practice yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know, there are those type of obstacles and so if you were the usda for example think about that he got half the land or more in many counties being farmed under tenancy. And tenants may be resistant uh, or not even able to enter into long-term conservation. 
you probably have difficulty even identifying or knowing who the non-operator landowners are or how you communicate with them or getting them to come into the office, right? Or getting them to make some type of decision. Uh, in many of their situations, right, the land may well be uh, their only asset. It may be what they're living on, right? And mm -hmm. so the rent's significant. It's what's paying the nursing home bills. And so those type of changes, you know, back in the book talks about you know, the historical period of the 30s. And, uh, you know, President Roosevelt and Secretary Wallace, uh, a wonderful figure from Iowa history, probably our most famous and important Iowan. Uh, you know, in 1937, they issued a report that was called the Farm Security Report. And it was a national report looking at what was going on in farm country, right? We had these drastic increase in foreclosures and lots of, you know, farmers being forced off the land and annual tenancies. And, um, you know, that report, which in fact was the basis for a law Iowa enacted, the one that requires advanced notice to terminate a farm tenancy, it was one of the recommendations from the 37 Farm Security Report. But it it dealt with tenancy in part as an evil or at least dangerous, right? It talked about the farm ladder. And the ladder is you'd be maybe a worker or a hired man, right? Which was a common expression. And then you'd be a tenant, but the goal was land ownership. And in fact, the USDA programs funding land ownership, what today is used to be farmer's home and you know now is part of the Farm Services Agency, they find their origins uh, in the Bankhead-Jones Act and, and those laws were passed in the late 30s. And so there used to be a, a greater focus on the idea of land ownership. Although well, only, for, were, certain, only but, for certain members of our population. Well, you know, that's a, you know, that's a whole different issue. <laughs> Which right? you do With address the book, in the book, yeah. Um, yeah. At some length, right? Yeah, and I think probably yeah. in, at, a, at much greater length than many readers might appreciate. <laughs> you know, when you have a section that's called Iowa's White Privilege has a billion-dollar price tag, uh, you know, you have to expect that. <laughs> Some folks uh, that might raise a hackle or two. Yeah. But yeah. so anyway, there there are a number of those type of issues. And so, you know, I think, you know, the book tries to explore those in a non-confrontational way, but in a way to help people stop and you know, just, you know, think about them a little bit and about how how this is part of our story and what shapes us. And that was another thing. Thing that I learned that I did not know was how involved FDR was in conservation issues because we think of Theodore Roosevelt as mm -hmm. being you know this great conservationist setting up national parks and so forth but really FDR had more of an impact in many ways he had more of an impact on agriculture right on on midwestern agriculture because you know, he was, uh, you know, in the presidency and with Wallace and others, kind of the architect of of conservation and uh, the, uh, you know, trying to recover from the Depression and, and the Dust Bowl, a lot of which then were land-based programs. And Roosevelt, as the book describes, he, he described himself as a kind of a Dutchess County tree farmer and, uh, and just... What struck me was just how involved and knowledgeable he as a president was in these issues. And uh, today, 
you know, it's hard to imagine uh, a president having that type of intimate understanding of the land and the people who are on it and, and thinking about it. And of course, you know, society is much more complicated, perhaps, and there's a smaller portion of the populace that live in uh, rural uh, communities at the time of Roosevelt, right? There were a third of us or more that were still, you know, on the land and, and living in, in rural society. But we have, you know, almost 20% of America you know, lives in rural counties. And, and you know, it, one of the other parts of that book, and, and it in part relates to both of the Roosevelts, and that's the whole issue of public land. Uh, as I say in the book, we're all landowners, right? I mean, people may say, well, I don't own any land, you know, I don't own a farm. Well, that may be true, uh, but there's a billion acres of public-owned land, uh, hundreds of thousands of acres here in Iowa, but almost no one lives uh, right, less than five miles away from public land, whether it's a city park or a county park or a state park or a river that you can paddle on because all of the water in the state's public uh, land or public property, public resources. And so, you know, we're all landowners of that public land and both have the opportunity to use it and have a responsibility to it and are benefited by policies that help add to it, for example, and take care of it. But I also make the point that all, all land, even land that people think of as being privately owned, has a public dimension to it. Right. right. I mean, the reason we can own property is only because we have a legal system and a public you know, a system that says you can own that. Right. And, and the deed at the courthouse will say you can own it. Right. It's the legal system to help to create that. But if people don't think their land has a public dimension to it. Try not paying your property taxes for a while mm. and see what happens. Right. <laughs> because right. the county can have your land sold to pay your property taxes. And so property taxes are an obligation that's attached to the land to help pay for the functioning of the society that makes the land that much more productive and enjoyable. Absolutely. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Neil D. Hamilton, author of The Land Remains, A Midwestern Perspective on Our Past and Future. So, um, you know, I have a number of, of topics from the book that I want to get into. But first, could you read a little bit from from the story? Uh, <laughs> any any story in particular you want me to read? Or? Probably one of the um, the back forty talking. Oh, the back forty talking. Yeah, uh, one of well, one of those. Um, well, let's see. Here's the back 40 talking about property rights. Okay. And so this is in the voice of a 40-acre field, which was on our farm. It was a classic back 40. We had a, a 160 with a 40 off of the back end. And so it was out in the middle of the section. It was beautiful field, flat, laying, and very fertile. And so what's the effect of someone saying they own you? No one ever owned me before the settlers came, so the concept was new. One thing it meant was, if I could be owned, then I could also be sold. As later events showed, one beauty of the law is how it developed other recognized forms of ownership, such as leases and tenancy. The idea of ownership introduced a whole new concern. Who owned me, and what did they plan to do with me? For example, why did they even want to own me? 
Owners come with all types of motivations for why they want to be owners. As time and as a century plus of being owned has shown, their main purpose is to use my fertility to grow plants they find useful. This has included pasture for livestock and forage crops like timothy and alfalfa for hay, but for the last 100 years, it's been to grow corn or in some years, soybeans. One of the great things about being able to grow crops is how versatile the owners find me and how many different ways what I can produce can be used. For most of the Ray Hamilton century, the corn I produced was used right on the farm to feed the hogs and cattle they raised for market. In the early years, there were oats to feed and fuel the draft horses like Fan and Dan, the team pulling the implements grooming me. In the winter and spring, some of what was left after the hogs and cattle consumed my corn, what you call manure, was brought out and spread. This rich, pungent material was tilled back into me and gave me a fertility of boost, kind of like how you people take vitamins. This replenishment helped me grow more corn the next year. The cycle may seem repetitive, but to me it created a rhythm to life. And thank you, Neil. Still there? Uh, yep, still here. Thank you, Neil. Okay. That's a little, okay. That's a no little bit of the uh, back 40 talking in The Land Remains, a Midwestern perspective on our past and future. Um, living down here in southeast Iowa, there's two names in the book that I am was familiar with but really didn't know <laughs> much about. So I'd like you to tell me, because mm -hmm. I live, you know, less than 10 miles probably from Lake, um, well, maybe 15 miles, but from Lake Darling. Mm -hmm. And who is that named after? <laughs> well, it's named after J.N. Uh, Darling, uh, J. North Darling, but well known as Ding. And Ding was one of the nation's most famous cartoonists, uh, uh, though cartoon maybe doesn't quite capture it. He was a political uh, cartoonist uh, for the register, though was syndicated by hundreds of papers around uh, the nation, uh, came to fame in the 1920s uh, all through uh, the 50s, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize, Prize twice for uh, cartoons, and but was particularly uh, focused on uh, nature and land and conservation uh, and uh, many of his images, several of which are in the book, uh, deal with uh, those issues. And in fact, cartoons that he drew in the 1930s or 40s could just as easily be run today, 80 years later, because the issues are still the same, soil conservation, flooding, uh, how we treat uh, nature. And Ding was also very politically involved. He was a, a Republican, wasn't perhaps much of a, an FDR fan, though he came to appreciate FDR's commitment to nature. And he's most famous in that regard, perhaps, for being the first head of what was uh, became the Fish and Wildlife or Fisheries and Biology section or whatever became then part of Interior. And uh, Darling drew the first duck stamp. Uh, and he also drew the image, if you know, the goose that's on the sign for National Wildlife Refuges. Uh, that long-necked goose mm. flying was a darling. 
And uh, and so Darling spent a period about a year and a half in, in D.C. running that agency. I think, you know, left in part out of political frustration and suffering fools. But he also served on an important three-member commission along with Thomas Beck and Aldo Leopold, another famous Iowan, uh, that helped kind of craft uh, – America's conservation and nature laws in the 1930s led to a national conference on, uh, you know, public land and, and wildlife conservation. And so Darling was a real, um, a real hero. And in the state of Iowa, he uh, lobbied against what was kind of the politicization of uh, our parks and game system and helped the reforms that led to kind of the independent citizen commissions that still exist today, right? The Natural Resource Commission and the Environmental Protection Commission uh, that helped uh, set the policy for our game laws and our state parks. And Darling was very, you know, involved in promoting the creation of our state parks uh, system, along with a number of other important people during that period. Um. And early in an earlier period, and also <laughs> down, you know, not too far from Fairfield is Lake Lacey, yeah. named after another important. Yeah, and person. and Lacey Kiyosakwa State Park, right, which is right. in Lee County and in, in the neighboring county, uh, as well. Well, you know, John Lacey is one that you know, Darling, uh, unfortunately, is kind of perhaps you know gradually sliding into not oblivion but you know a little bit of a historical figure not as maybe well recognized as we would hope but Lacey perhaps has slid more into oblivion which is really unfortunate and I try to make the case in the book that he's probably one of the most underappreciated conservationists from that period with uh, Teddy Roosevelt you know Roosevelt in fact uh, leaned on him as a great ally. Uh, Lacey was from Oskaloosa, uh, served in Congress for, I think, nine terms, had been in the Civil War twice, in fact, uh, and then uh, had been in the Iowa legislature for just a term and then had been a railroad lawyer in which he was dealing with interstate commerce issues. And so when he moved to Congress, you know, he ultimately became the chair of the Public Lands Committee which at that time, because we still had, you know, tens and tens of millions of acres of land in the public domain owned and controlled by the federal government, much of which then was moving into what became our national forest system and also into national parks, the Public Lands Commission became very important. But Lacey also was a strong proponent of wildlife protection. And that's where many people may be familiar with his name, the Lacey Acts. Um, and at the turn of the century, you know, plumed birds in Florida, you know, egrets and other beautiful birds were being slaughtered for their feathers, which are being used in the millinery trade. And uh, the whole issue of how to stop that slaughter of those birds was a challenge, right? I mean, Florida could have a state law and try to stop them, but then the birds were moving, right? And the feathers moving in interstate commerce. And so uh, Lacey's genius was to say, well, hold it. Congress can pass a law using the interstate commerce provisions of the Constitution to limit the movement of animals and animal products that have been shot illegally under state law 
across state lines. And so it was really the first federal game protection law that helped then Florida and the nation try to bring bring the plume hunters uh, to task. And then there was a later Lacey Act in, in that regard. And, and this was before the Migratory uh, Bird Act, right, that uh, in I think passed in 16. I may have that date wrong, but the Migratory Bird Act is in what, you know, protected uh, geese and ducks and other birds that move in migration and allowed the federal government to set the seasons and the bag limits as opposed to the individual states, uh, which were, right, uh, many of them either having no limits or... And so then it was also Ding Darling and the FDRs that came along, right, that were later reserving millions of acres of land, you know, much of the uh, prairie potholes in North Dakota and other areas as that kind of duck breeding ground uh, for where these migratory birds would move to. And so... And then finally about Lacey, the act that has, I mean, the Lacey acts relating to uh, wildlife are still on the books. But the one that has uh, real legs is uh, Lacey was the author of the Antiquities Act. And most folks might not know the Antiquities <laughs> Act if it bit them. Uh, but the Antiquities Act is the law that authorizes the president to create national monuments. And so in recent years, this has been much in the news because, you know, President Obama uh, created the Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments in Utah. Uh, the next president uh, tried to roll those back significantly at the behest of state officials. And now the Biden administration, right, has reversed that and restored those national monuments to their original size. This issue is being you know, litigated, but the the law when Lacey wrote it, it was a you know kind of a one paragraph law that didn't um, it didn't have any limits to it in terms of the size. It just said the president could out of the federal domain reserve land that had a scientific or historical or natural value to it, and and the the acres that were contiguous to it to carry out those missions. And so Teddy Roosevelt used the Antiquities Act like 15 or 16 times in the next couple of years. Wow. And many of the things that were protected originally were things then that went on and became national parks, like Devil's Tower, even, uh, right, uh, the Grand Canyon, uh, which, you know, the federal government was having a fight with Arizona over protecting it. And so by using presidential authority to withdraw that land from the federal domain, which meant then that it couldn't be disposed of, right, to private uh, owners, then that created the period of time. And then Congress could come back and say, oh, my gosh, you know, we do need to, uh, you know, protect, um, you know, these various uh, places. And so that story's told there. And it was Lacey that authored that act. And uh, here we are 115 years later, and it's still in the news and still being used. And, and you know, now, 100 years from now, I bet that the things that are now being named as um, national monuments will look back and say, of course, you know, we should, sure. obviously we should have protected those. It <laughs> well, won't even seem we... controversial anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, you know, that's an important point, 
to remember as well, because, you know, unfortunately in Iowa, right, we have a number of uh, institutions and organizations, the Farm Bureau perhaps being uh, the most significant. <laughs> that uh, I bet they don't of, like your book too much, but anyway. Well, I, 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 they haven't asked me to do a reading, let's put it that way, and I don't know that it's been reviewed in the spokesman. But they're very much opposed to the idea of adding more public land, right, to mm -hmm. um, whether it's county parks or state parks or the state forests. And, uh, you know, they're even, you know, would, as they have proposed, you know, would want to prevent private landowners from being able to make those type of sales at market value to the public. Um, wow. But, that you know, seems the idea extreme. Of, <laughs> of public, you know, there's always been kind of local opposition to protecting land, I, you know, and a great example is, uh, the, you know, the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, uh, right? The, uh, the several thousand uh, smallholders and people living up in the hollers and, you know, the mountains uh, didn't like the idea that it was somehow going to become a national park. It became so controversial, right? and uh, the Rockefellers stepped in, right, and uh, acquired significant portions of it. And the same thing happened uh, with the Grand Tetons, right, and uh, around Jackson Hole. You know, it was the Rockefellers that uh, kind of surreptitiously acquired several hundred thousand acres of that ranch land, and then we're going to make a gift of it to the federal government to create the park. And there were even, you know, people that were going to oppose that. No, we, we won't even take it if you give it to us. Uh, <laughs> and now we look back and we say, well, how could we not have created, right, Great Smoky Mountain National Park, right, yeah. or, or the Grand Tetons? And so your point about, you know, as we look back in the future, uh, there are opportunities we lost. You know, there's a, the book tells a little bit of a story of an opportunity we lost down in your neck of the woods is, uh, you know, Iowa is one of the handful of states that doesn't have a national forest. And um, there are never, a number of reasons for that. People could say, well, we don't have a lot of forests, but, you know, you have a fair amount of forest down in, in uh, southeast Iowa and in the southern counties. We had more, <laughs> we used to have more, right? We've cut a lot of it. But, you know, there were plans to create the Hawkeye National Forest, and this was being assembled out of land that the USDA was acquiring, right, from uh, farmers uh, uh, as they were you know, having financial difficulty. And as part of the resettlement effort, right, they were acquiring this kind of worn out, broken down land, helping move people to more fertile land. And so the plan was to create, right, a... a 300,000 plus acre national forest and uh, and just as a number of other eastern states the Suwannee in Illinois is an example were created in the late 30s out of that kind of depression area land resettlement efforts but the war was coming uh, the congressional appetite for funding uh, those type of efforts uh, the opposition locally, you know, the federal government was going to pay $9 an acre for people to acquire that land. And landowners were happy to get $9 an acre for uh, uh, these eroded uh, hill farms. Uh, but then it didn't happen. And the feds had acquired tens of thousands of acres of land. And then when the national forest plans fell through, 
they transferred uh, parts of that land of the state. And so Stevens State Forest, Shimmick, uh, a number of those state forests that you have down in those counties, those were pieces of land that the federal government had acquired that were going to be part of the Hawkeye wow. National Forest that didn't come to be. Uh, now, you, you know, okay, did Iowa need a 300,000-acre national forest? Well, who knows, you know. Would have been cool. Like the, <laughs> the Mark Twain National Forest that you have in Missouri, right, was created in roughly the same period. Mm. Um, and then the book tells the story, right, of I've been on the board of the Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation for 30-plus years. And uh, a year or two ago, we acquired a, a almost – thousand acre tract of that land right uh, that was actually in those same townships that were going to be part of the national forest and suffice it to say we paid much more than nine dollars yeah, right, to uh, to acquire it and um, you know and our acquisition was in part uh, as an intermediate step to try to then move it into public ownership and you know expanding the parks and counties that are down there and you know, there's lots of local economic development opportunities, as well as the recreational opportunities for our citizens that come from those type of public lands. Now, Neil, we only have like five minutes left, minutes, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we've we've um, covered a lot of history, um, but the book doesn't just end with history. We're looking at, um, you know, the situation now and and in the future too, and what can be done mm -hmm. and how how we can protect our land um one of the big issues we didn't even touch on was water quality and how mm -hmm. uh, you know that's the, my the watershed book, <laughs> three quarters of the way through writing a new book called the river knows well focuses on water quality but it might be this time next year before we can okay it'll be out. okay so. but let's just briefly talk um touch sure. on land trusts well, land trust, you know, the Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation is a great example, right? And here's an organization that's been in, uh, in existence for over 40 years. Uh, we've protected well over 100,000 acres of Iowa land working, or I think, I'm sorry, it's closer to 180,000 now, uh, working with over 1,000 landowners and families. Uh, when I donated, when my wife and I donated the uh, a piece of land in Adams County that is now uh, Hamilton Prairie that you can find if you're driving on Highway 34 between uh, Corning and, and Creston. And we work through the Natural Heritage Foundation. And so the purpose of it is that, you know, the state isn't able to move very quickly when it comes to land acquisition. You know, so for example, let's say a piece of land next to a state park or you know, upstream from a, a lake that you know, if someone dies, the land comes on the market, it's going to be auctioned. Well, you know, the state didn't necessarily have it in its budget, right, to right. go out and buy land at an auction that came up with a month's notice. Um, but something like the Natural Heritage Foundation can, and we've purchased any number of properties uh, with the hope, right, no guarantee, but with the hope that the state may acquire them, right, in years ahead when the state can budget for it or the local government can apply for a REAP grant, right, or a, a national uh, wildlife grant from uh, the federal government. And so the foundation, you know, works with landowners using a lot of flexible tools, uh, conservation easements, for example. Uh, you want to protect your 
timber, but want to make sure that it's protected after you're gone. Uh, you could grant a conservation easement so that uh, uh, protecting it as a, a forest is right. Right, and the landowner gets records. a landowner gets a tax deduction for can, the right, value for a of donation. That. Yeah. And and I mean, people can give us land. Uh, we can buy land. Uh, they can donate conservation easements, reserve life estates. You know, continuing to live on it for their life. Um, but a lot of landowners, you know, have uh, have protected special features, right? They've restored a prairie or a wetland or a timber or an oak savanna. And I think are wondering, well, what, you know, who's going to who's going to look out for this in the future? What may happen to this? Or uh, wouldn't it be nice if, in fact, this land became a, a county park? And the foundation, that's one of the roles that we can play is working with landowners, working with other local governments like county conservation boards, working with the state, DNR, Fish and Wildlife Service and others to do things. And so. You know, protecting the shoreline and uh, the Great Lakes, uh, protecting the uh, the viewshed along the Upper Iowa River, the mines of Spain, right? We've done projects in, I think, all but about two of Iowa's counties now. Wow. I'm, I'm involved with a newer land trust called the Southern Iowa Land Trust. Um, oh, great. And okay. No. their focus is on um, organic farming, you know, preserving okay. land for organic farming. Sure. Well, and so, you know, the land trust movement, there's about maybe 1,400 land trusts around the country, some of them small and localized, some of them statewide, like the Natural Heritage Foundation, some of them, you know, like the Nature Conservancy or the Trust for Public Land um, may operate at a national or international level. But they're one of those kind of institutional devices, uh, using the law creatively, working with landowners, and, uh, you know, and listening to the land, I guess, you know, mm. as we end uh, this discussion, you know, one of the comments I got from a lot of people is, boy, you know, your book made me stop and think, yes. made me stop and think about some things I hadn't thought about before. And that that's, was one of my goals. And Abs one of my goals is to ask people to listen <laughs> to the land. Right? And absolutely. So. It does make you stop and think. And also it is um, entertaining to read. As well, <laughs> what, so well, there's, there's some humor in there. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm, you know, I hope that everyone actually gets a chance to read this book and learn more about our land, particularly in Iowa, but it goes beyond Iowa as well. Yeah. And I want to thank you so much, Neil, for being with us today. Well, thank you, Monica. I've enjoyed this very much, and you, know, you can get the book uh, wherever books are sold. You can order it directly from uh, Ice Cube Press on their website. And uh, if you ever bump into me somewhere, I'd be happy to sign a copy for you. Fantastic. And as usual, we close with a quote. I, I found a wonderful quote from Andy Warhol. I think huh. he said, I think having land and not ruining it is the most beautiful art that anybody could ever want to own. Wow. I've never seen that <laughs> quote. You might send me that in an email if you will. I will do that. I will okay. do that. Okay, great. You, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Bye, Monica. Bye.